0: Well, good morning, New Hope Church. Well, thank you, worship team, for a great time of worship. That was awesome. I really appreciate it. I mean, uh, the drummer there is our tech director, Derek Kring. And uh, two of these uh, musicians are youth leaders. And another one is the worship leader for our college group. And um, that was just great. It's good to see all that. Uh, hello. My name is Michael Glenn. I'm the worship pastor here at New Hope Church. And Pastor Mark is having some time off this weekend. So you get me. (laughs) That's how this is going to work out. Um, We're going to get started here. But before we do, would you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity that you have given us to sing, to remember, to celebrate and declare your blessings on us. Thank you for worship. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that settles into this place and makes sense of all of this. God, my prayer for all of us here, as you know, I've been praying all this week, Lord, that each one of us here, in hearing what we have to learn from Psalm 103, that we would grow into be uh, better worshipers, more committed followers of you. Strengthen us now in you, through your word. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. And all God's people said, so in November of 2010, the United States was still involved in Operation Enduring Freedom, which is what the, was the military response to the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. And on November 21st of 2010, a young Marine Lance Corporal from Jackson, Mississippi, named William Kyle Carpenter, and a fellow Marine were on post duty, or outlook duty on the rusty roof of an outpost named Patrol Base, Dakota. And that is in Marja, which is in the Helmand Province, Afghanistan. Near the end of his four-hour rotation on post duty, after having spent time ducking behind a three-high layer of sandbags through which Kyle could feel the thud of incoming sniper fire, Just minutes before he was about to be relieved, somebody threw a grenade onto the rooftop where he and his fellow Marine were stationed. Kyle doesn't remember much from that day, but what was very obvious, even in the immediate aftermath of the explosion, was that Kyle had jumped on the grenade. And both he and his fellow Marine miraculously survived. It took the military two and a half years to produce a 252-page report detailing the events of that day, after which the military decided to award Kaya with its highest military honor, the Medal of Honor. But one burning question remained. How does anyone survive that I'm going to answer that question, but before I do, I want to take a minute and recap with you some of the things that we learned last time I was up here teaching a few months ago. Uh, our text for today is Psalm 103, verses 2 through 5, but I want to touch on and bring out a couple concepts from verse 1 before we get started. So let's take a look. Psalm 103, verse 1, the Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, in all that is within me, bless his holy name. Now, to bless the Lord is a call to worship. It's a call that demands a response. That response, in large part, is what we just did in worship. That response is declaring and celebrating and remembering God's blessings on us. And when we bless the Lord in this way, when we recount and celebrate and remember God's blessings on us, this is a practical way that we are built up In Christ, we are strengthened in him when we remember his blessings. Blessing God roots those truths into our hearts, into our minds, and our souls, in our lives, and makes us stronger. Kyle Carpenter survived that uh, grenade explosion for a very interesting reason. Military investigators, what they concluded was that young, fit, strong Kyle with his armor on, was actually a stronger and more dense object than the frail roof that he was laying on. So when Kyle jumped on the grenade and that grenade went off on that roof, because of the shabby construction of the rooftop, the lion's share of the blast went down through the roof and into the room below instead of going up through Kyle. See, Kyle was stronger than the roof. And it made me think when I heard that story about how God wants to strengthen us so that when something blows up in our life, when our marriage gets difficult, when we lose our job, when we have that prodigal child, we can survive. Now, it is good to pray to God that he would change our circumstances in life, right? That is a good, good thing to do. Um, to take away the cancer, to heal the body, to bring that prodigal child back. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to make a broad summary statement about what I read in the Bible about how God deals with us in difficult circumstances. So I'm going to put it up on the screen. I want you to know this is not a scripture verse. You can reject it if you want. This is just Michael's broad summary statement about circumstances and the Christian life. I think... Most of the time, rather than changing your circumstances, God desires to make you strong and capable of enduring them. Or he chooses to give you outright victory over them for the glory of his name. Now, I want to give you a clear example of that from scripture. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10 Very clearly, God says this, do not be afraid. I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So Psalm 103, verse one begins like this. Bless the Lord, all my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Then it continues into verse two. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And then, after this verse, our psalm shifts gears. The psalmist begins to answer the call of bless the Lord. He answers the call by remembering and recounting the blessings of God. And I, what I plan for us for today is so that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to look at verse 2 through 5. We're going to go line by line. We're going to examine and look at these magnificent blessings that God has for us. You ready? Here we go. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Who pardons all your iniquities, our first blessing, this pardon, this healing, is the first order of business when it comes to relationship with God and enjoying the blessings that follow. Now, my daughter here is graduating high school uh, this year. Congratulations, Grace. All right. Now, uh, quite an ambitious young woman in the process of deciding what was next for her life. She applied to like 4,000 colleges. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I think it was 18, but it felt like 4,000, and I'll tell you why. Because every university that she applied to had their own admissions process. Fill out this form, write this essay, take this test, raid your parents' savings account. You all know the deal, right? If you want to come to our university, if you want to learn what we have to teach you, if you want to enjoy the social and, uh, and the student life here, you have to do this first. Because some things have to come first before good things can follow. In this way, the pardon of God, church, the pardon of God through Jesus is the entry through which relationship with God is established and his eternal blessings are given. So I can't stand up here and continue teaching on these amazing blessings without being clear about something, as difficult it may be to hear. The blessings that are to follow in this text are believer blessings. God does not allow us to reject his pardon and then expect his blessings to follow. Now, I fear a lot of people outside the church looking in Um, oftentimes they get this impression that there were a group of people that have gathered together that are all arrogant and high and mighty in some way. And um, I think that's sad. In reality, um, it's only when you humble yourself and you come to the conclusion that you need a pardon from Jesus that you will find yourself in the company of true believers. Believers. You see, a true believer does not invite a non-believer into a better-than-you club. A true believer invites a non-believer to come and kneel at the cross with them. And oh, the blessings that follow. And oh, the blessings that follow. Now, all this talk about Jesus may have some of you asking a question in your head. We are looking at Psalm 103, and I'm talking a lot about Jesus Christ, and you're thinking, hey, Um, wasn't it quite written quite a long time before the angel chorus uh, showed up on the sweet still plains of Bethlehem on silent night? And the answer to that question that you may be asking yourself is yes. So our psalm was written a thousand years or more before Jesus showed up on the scene. And I've been talking about Jesus as uh, being our pardon. So where did King David get this idea of forgiveness being the entryway into relationship with God? Where did he come up with that? Well, there's, there's a lot of answers to that question, but I'm going to go with this one because it allows me to, to use a laser pointer. And it's kind of fun. I feel like Iron Man up here. Now, I, I know uh, it's up on the left corner. Can you guys see that? You know what? Don't answer that question. That's okay. Um, but if you can it's okay. I think you'll still be able to follow along. This up here is a picture of a tabernacle. Uh, in the ancient Israel people, before there was a temple built, God had given instructions, very, very specific instructions to his people on how to build one of these things. Now, King David, the guy who wrote our psalm, um, lived before the construction of the temple, so David would have worshipped at a tabernacle. This is where he would have gone to church, if you will. Now, you can read the very specific instructions on how God wanted his people to build this in Exodus 25, but I want to point a couple things out, all right? This right here houses two rooms, this tent area, and uh, on the westernmost edge, this would have faced west up here, on the westernmost edge of the tabernacle compound was the most holy place. This is where God would have um, manifested his glory, and the other room in there is called the holy place. So on the very western edge, we have uh, God manifesting his presence. Notice... There is a wall around this entire compound, okay? This is God giving the instruction to his tabernacle building people a very clear message. You know what? You don't approach me any which way you choose. There is one way to God, only one door. Can I get an amen for that? One way that we get to God, um, All right, so now if I'm walking in the tabernacle here and I'm making my way over to God over here, you've got to make two stops before you get there, Okay. Now, this first item here, this is a bronze altar. This is the altar where people would bring animals and they would sacrifice them. Blood would be shed for the forgiveness of sins. They would bring animals. The priest would would get the animal on there. Blood would be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the next stop, you got, to, oh, you can read about that in Exodus 27. Exodus 27, if you want to read about the specific instructions on the sacrifices, that's Leviticus chapter 4. Now, stop one, we've come in the door. We've got stop one. We've been at our altar. This next stop is, this is called the bronze basin. This would have been a basin that would have been filled with water with which you would wash yourself, wash the filth and the grime off yourself before you made it to the Holy place. This is where David worshipped. Now, I'm going to bring back up Psalm 103, verse 3, and we'll do it again. Are you ready? Who pardons all of your iniquities and who heals all of your diseases? Pardons your iniquities. This is where the sacrifice are made for sin. Second step, is heal all your diseases after which you can enter into the presence of God. You see, this has been God's plan all along. This has been his design from the beginning. God's people knew that in order to have relationship with him, sins had to be forgiven. A sacrifice had to be made. And a once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself on a cross that so everyone and everyone who would receive that pardon would be forgiven and allowed into relationship with God and then the blessings that would follow. And oh, do they go. Those blessings, listen to this. Christian, you ready? Listen. You have been brought near to God through Jesus' blood. That's Ephesians 2. Jesus' blood church is the mechanism by which we receive our pardon. Christian, you have been declared righteous by God right now. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross. New Hope Church. New Hope Church. We belong to God because Jesus shed his blood. That's Acts chapter 20. Christian, whatever moral debt you had with God, it has been paid. And you guessed it because Jesus shed his blood. That's actually Hebrews chapter 10, not 20. You apologize, that, that's uh, that a little mistake there. Moving on. Who pardons all of your iniquities and heals all your disease. So I have a difficult question. Does God heal all of our diseases? That's a tough question. The scholars and the commentators that I researched and read in preparing for this message Uh, None of them, they were all unwilling to just dismiss the idea that this verse may in fact mean, in part, exactly that, that God heals all of our physical diseases. Now, I know that is hard to hear, but the explanation isn't complicated. You see, Christian, on a long enough timeline, every child of God is healed of every disease. On a long enough timeline, every child of God is healed of every disease. And I would refer you back to the great message that Pastor Mark preached this past week about what happens to a Christian when they die. He goes into quite a a bit of detail about what that is like. We will have new bodies made out of new stuff that doesn't get sick. So how else can we understand what this means, heals our diseases? Uh, Phil Johnson, he's the executive director and pastor of John MacArthur's Grace To You ministry, describes it this way. Speaking of God healing our diseases. Now the context would suggest that this is not talking primarily about physical diseases. The theme here is redemption from sin. And I think the context suggests the disease the psalmist has in mind are spiritual maladies. This is poetry. And Hebrew poetry depends on parallelism of meaning. Hebrew poets rhyme their thoughts. Disease and iniquities are rhyming thoughts. This is precisely what the Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah was speaking about in Isaiah 53. These are very famous verses. Take a look. But he was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the chastening that for our well-being fell on him and by his scourging we are healed the context of this verse is very clearly jesus sacrifice yeah his physical death and at the very end of this verse we see what the uh, result is what one of the benefits of that sacrifice is and that is a healing god doesn't just declare you not guilty and then leave you be. He promises to work in us, to heal us from the effects of addictions and habits and jealousy and apathy and pride that linger in us. He heals the brokenhearted, Psalm 147. He binds up their wounds. So are you. Are you wounded? Are you hurting? Preach this truth to yourself, just as Psalm David does in Psalm 103. This blessing, this guarantee of healing, this is not a future concept. This is a very present reality. God heals. Now, I I don't want to alienate or discount any of you who may be going through something right now. If you're not experiencing healing in life, it's not like you're doing anything wrong Don't hear me say that. But I'm preaching Psalm 103, and this is what Psalm 103 has to say to us, to encourage us. Now, little congregational participation moment, if you don't mind. Maybe we can all encourage one another. So, I want to ask you this. If you have been able through the ministry of a church or a faithful friend or time in a Bible study or in one of the care ministries here at New Hope Church, if you have been able to have a healing or uh, shed a sinful habit, would you be willing to raise your hand? Has anyone here experienced the healing of God and be willing? And look at those. Look at those hands. You are all living proof that God keeps his word. He keeps his word. And church, I have to tell you, this is one of the reasons God chooses to sustain the church. It is so that we can care for one another. You know, our care ministries blew up this past year. We had a lot of work to do and a lot of people stepped up for that. We have Stephen ministers. We have care ministers. We have the leaders sitting right here. We have work that we can do with you, walk with you, beside you, put our arm beside you. This is what I encourage you. Part of this is on you. Reach out, give a call, talk to a pastor, visit the prayer room after a service. I, God can fulfill this truth in your life as well. Let's move on. Who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Now, it was this verse, it was this very verse that first caused me to want to preach Psalm 103. I don't know, a while ago when I was first given the option to decide what I wanted to teach on next. Uh, I want to explain why. Archaeologists, in digging up um, the areas where the ancient people of Israel would have inhabited during this time that our song was written, um, uh, almost always come across various pits in the areas where these people lived. You can Google it. Uh, so they were very common back there. Now, I don't have much of a problem falling into a pit. You probably don't either when you're walking down the sidewalk. But back then in ancient Israel, this was something that was quite common. And uh, from a, a historical standpoint, uh, most historians believe that many of them were primarily used to store grain. Uh, but they were also used, might I say, for some less kind sorts of things, um, uh, they weren't always just putting grain in there. Let's put it that way. All right, let me give you a biblical example from uh, in the prophet Jeremiah's life. Uh, we look in the book of Jeremiah, and in chapter 38, we hear and see a story. This is what God has done. God has sent prophet Jeremiah to go speak to King Zedekiah, and the king is having nothing to do with what Jeremiah is saying. We can look at that. Look at me with the Jeremiah chapter 38. Then they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Mr. M, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern, or pit, there was no water, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. Do you find it just a little curious? that the, this king's son had a pit like they like had one like everybody would have known what that meant oh yeah the king's son pit that's over there now the king eventually changes his mind and gives a command to get jeremiah out this happens two verses later verse 10 then the king commanded Ebedmelech the Ethiopian saying take 30 men from here under your authority and bring up Jeremiah the prophet from the cistern before he dies. So I want you to take note of two things about this pit, this ancient pit. Number one, Jeremiah was not going to survive the pit. And number two, it took 30 men to get him out. 30 guys to drag this guy out of this pit. As you see, pits were also prisons. And they were weapons of war. They would dig them sometimes and bury sharpened spears at the bottom of them. No one singing Psalm 103 in the time when it was written would have missed this point. In the pit, you were wounded, probably mortally, There's no way you can get out on your own. Someone has to get you out. In the pit, you're useless. You are as good as dead. In some translations of Psalm 103, instead of the word pit, the translators just skip to the end and put the word death, who redeems your life from death or destruction. This isn't the pits. This is a lot different than that. And God redeems us out of the pit. Redeems. That's the word that rang my bell when I first rang this psalm. You know why? Because in this context, to redeem is to ransom. It's to purchase. It's to pay for. Uh, I have two young boys. They may or may not be sitting right in front of me right now. You're doing a good job. Um, a couple of years back, uh, we were gifted a small green lizard. And I'm not kidding. Uh, this little lizard had been found in the luggage of some friends of ours uh, on a re- after they had come home from Florida. So this little, little persistent stowaway lizard was given as a gift to my boys. And as a side note, and I think Pastor Mark might get a kick out of this too, uh, they insisted on giving this little lizard a Greek name. Now, if you're newer, newer to New Hope, um, uh, because the earliest manuscripts of the Old Testament are written in Greek, we learn our fair share of Greek words, right? All right. But he was little, so we couldn't call him Megas. That was off the table. So they called him. <laughs> they called him Festus, which means happy, a happy stowaway lizard. Why not? That's what they called him. And so uh, one evening, I'm driving home from work, and uh, I am churning through this, this text that we're looking at right now, how God redeems our life in the pit. I know I'm going to be preaching on it. I'm mulling it over in my mind again and again. And as I'm driving home, I get a call from my wife and she asked me to stop at the pet store and pick up some food for little Festus. So I head over there It's quitting time, so there's quite busy. There's a long line at the counter. So I spent a little time milling around the pet store. And I actually kind of got a kick out of it. It was was really fun to see the families there that were picking out their pets, you know. You know, little Sarah's tapping on the gerbil glass, you know, seeing which one is going to respond so she can pick one out. You know, and proud dad is walking Johnny over to the little puppy cage, looking for that perfect canine companion for that game of fetch later. And as I'm watching all of this, I couldn't help but think to myself, "Hmm, you know what I bet doesn't happen all that often in a pet store? This. Yeah, I'd like a pet. You got any half dead ones? Maybe ones that have been falling into a pit, maybe impaled really good. Maybe something with a broken leg. Maybe one that's blind. I want to pay top dollar for the most busted up animal you have. Now, the point of this illustration is to tell you that those of you who rescue wounded animals are more Christ-like than the rest of us. <laughs> That's actually not the point of this. But after I watched this play out, after I'm watching these families look to purchase these animals, just an amazing rush of joy came over me in that moment. You know why? Because God, the God, Sitting on his throne, whose gaze extends to the end of the universe, whose sense of being isn't bound by time, who speaks and sustains all good things, would somehow, while sitting on this throne, take the time to walk to the edge, look down into a pit and see me. Impaled, bruised, broken, as good as dead with nothing really to offer back to him that matters of any eternal significance. I have nothing to offer God. He would take the time to look out into that pit, see me all busted up, and say, I'll buy that one. I'll buy that one with my life. What do you say to that? How do you even respond to that? Can you imagine a greater dichotomy of ideas than what I've just described to you? That the king of the universe be willing to lay down his life to redeem your life from a pit, from certain death? How could I ever conclude again that God does not love me? Where could I be? What could I be facing after coming to grips with this reality? That God saved me. How can I ever again just dismiss him? Jesus died. Jesus rose. That happened. Amen. The pardon has been offered. And he works in us to heal us and then just steps out of heaven and dies to redeem us out of the pit of hell. Oh, oh, did I forget to mention that in both the book of Ezekiel and a revelation, the pit is hell. Is hell. Who redeems your life from the pit and who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. So God purchases you, he lifts you out of the pit and drops a crown on your head He doesn't sigh or shake his head in disappointment or give you some litany of I told you souls. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. So beautiful, it's jewelry. Now, note in our psalm church, note in our psalm, that there's a big shift. There's a second shift. After we come out of the pit, we're crowned. Good is dead in a pit. Royalty like that. That is your God at work. That is your God in action. Now, at face value, what does it mean to be crowned? At face value, it means this. This loving kindness and compassion that God has crowned you with isn't yours. You're not crowned with something that belongs to you. This loving kindness and compassion is God's loving kindness and compassion. This isn't the limited, earthy love. This is the heaven-sent, eternal, limitless love and compassion of Almighty God. And while, yes, you can crown somebody for simply the aesthetics of it, but don't misunderstand, that is not what is going on here. You see, a crowned prince or princess does the work of the king. A crowned prince or princess brings the wealth, brings the riches of the king to the world. So you haven't been crowned with loving kindness and compassion just so that you can feel good about it necessarily. You were crowned with loving kindness and compassion of God so that you can bring it out to the world. So everyone that you encounter would also experience the limitless love and compassion of Almighty God because your king's work is loving kindness and compassion. That's your crown now. Wear it well. Our Lord does nothing by halves. He will not stay his hand till he has gone to the utmost with his people. Cleansing, healing, redemption are not enough. He must, needs make them kings and queens and crown them. And the crown must be far more precious than if it were made of corruptible things, such as silver or gold. It is decked with jewels. It is studded with gems of grace and lined with the velvet of loving kindness. It is decked with the jewels of mercy, but made soft for the head to wear by a lining of tenderness. Who is like unto thee, O Lord?" Charles Spurgeon. Moving on, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth, your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, uh, the first half of this verse, "Who satisfies your years with good things," uh, this falls right into the category of phrases and language in the Bible that are actually difficult to translate. So depending on what translation of of the Bible you're reading, when you read that line, satisfies your years with good things, you may see a bunch of different language going on. Now, I don't want to get technical here on this. I'm not going to do that. I would just like for us to enjoy it for a minute. I have two ways we can understand this. First, to satisfy your years is probably what it is, what you think it means, which is this. It is to have your needs met. It is to be fed when you are hungry. But it's paired with the idea of over the years, over time. So God isn't just driving by and flinging stuff out of his you know, chariot window for you so that you can you know, have a need met like in a moment. This idea is that God is with you. He's with you. He's meeting your needs through the years. He is faithful and loving to do so. He's going to be with you. And he won't be satisfying you, not with what you think is good for you, but with what God knows is good for you. And there's a difference there sometimes, isn't it? Another way you can translate this first, which I think adds a whole new layer of, of beauty to it, is this. When we say to satisfy your years with good things, you could also render it who decorates your years with good things. You know, there's a pine tree, and then there's a delicately lit Christmas tree. These are two different things to decorate your years. Um, I played piano just yesterday afternoon at a wedding one of our tech volunteers got married. Congratulations, right? Um, Wasn't expecting that. Anyway, um, and I'll tell you this. I think Stefan and Julianne, Each see one another as a gift from God that will decorate their years. Judging by the way they were looking at each other all night long, I think that's for sure, that they probably think that about themselves. Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Last blessing, church, last one. So that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Well, what does that mean? Well, we have an awesome youth group here at New Hope Church. We really do. Very thankful for the leaders. And um, over the course of the last couple of years, I've had the privilege of serving as a leader in, in the youth group in various capacities. Now, I want you to use your imagination a little bit. What do you think? <laughs> I saw some youth group kids just now smiling at me. What do you think happens at youth group? Just use your imagination. You got like between 25 and 50, 12 to 18 year olds all getting together. What does that look like? Uh, is there laughter? Is there playfulness? Is there joy? Is there enthusiasm? Is there youthfulness? Does sometimes stuff break because we get a little rowdy? Yeah, yeah, happens. Now, that's all. Part of youthfulness. All yes and amen. So don't ever buy into this notion that God is some grumpy overlord waiting to smash his hand down on you when you find yourself having a good time. God wants to renew your youth in that sense. This is fun. Fun. Laughter. Joy. However, However, paired with the image of an eagle, we have to throw out what may be silly about the youthfulness that God blesses us with. Because an eagle is poised, strong, and unchallenged in the skies. When an eagle is soaring through the air, it has no, it is the top of the food chain. It has no enemies. Here's another thing. Beginning at about the age of five, an adult eagle goes through a, roughly an annual process where they molt, where they'll shed their feathers. In the process, they look kind of shabby, but a new ones spring up, all brand new. You imagine King David looking at the eagle thousands of years ago, watching this eagle renew its feathers and think to himself, that's kind of how God renews my strength my youthfulness, my joy. He does it like that. And it's fitting, isn't it? The very last picture of the first part of our song is that of an eagle of strength, beauty and poise. The final cadence of our song here sounds a strong, uplifting chord of an image of a God who intends for you to be in him, that image, summed up in a single word, strong. That's what an eagle is. It's strong and confident in his blessings. Do not fear, for God is with you. Do not anxiously look about. He is your God. He will strengthen you, church. He will help you. He will uphold you with his righteous right hand. Following this service, uh, there will be people in our prayer room. I'll be lingering about. If you'd like to have someone pray with you or for you, if you have any questions about the pardon I was chatting about earlier, or I'd love to chat with you about that. We'll be around. As a believer in Jesus Christ, God forgives your sin. He pardons you. And he's faithful to work in you to heal you of the lingering effects of sin in your life life and he repurchases you out of certain death he redeems you he buys you and then he puts a crown on your head and decorates your years with good things he meets your physical needs and makes you a kid again renews your youth without the folly to produce a poised strong child of God. Be strengthened. I pray that no matter where you are, up, down, high, low, that these unbreakable truths of Scripture, these mighty, mighty blessings, will help you spread your wings and soar into all that God has planned for you. Be encouraged and be strengthened, my brothers and sisters in Christ, for the glory of his holy name. Amen.